Indian Lake, WXLQ, Bristol, Vermont, and WNYV, White, uh, Whitehall, Glens Falls. It's 8 o'clock. Good morning. This is Northern Light for Wednesday, February 14th, Valentine's Day. I'm Monica Sandreski. And I'm Todd Moe. Police have stopped a man with guns and ammunition from entering the hospital in Plattsburgh. Also, Democrats in Congress have clinched this key seat now that Tom Swazi has won a special election on Long Island. Plus, lighter material, we have our final installment of our series on Adirondack love stories. I remember a pivotal moment. The first time we ever really spoke outside of work was literally right outside of the building in the rain, standing under the little eave, and uh, we talked about photography. And our series on North Country Libraries continues with the chat with Emily Hastings, the director of the library in Canton. There are things where... Um, you know, libraries will, will say we're about more than just books, uh, and I'll say we are, and we're also about books. <laughs> like, books have also not gone away. All of that's coming up on Northern Light. Stick with us. Broadcast of Northern Light here on North Country Public Radio is supported by North Country Children's Museum, Potsdam, with hands-on and minds-on exhibits and programs for children 12 and under and their families. Open Wednesday to Sunday, 10 to 5, northcountrychildrensmuseum.org. And by Point Positive, offering entrepreneurs the support they need to start and accelerate their ventures through mentoring, education, and startup funding. PointPositiveADK.com. This is Northern Light. I'm Monica Sandreski. And I'm Todd Moe. A Plattsburgh man is accused of threatening the local hospital, and as Kara Chapman reports, his arrest may have prevented a mass shooting. Police say they got a tip that 52-year-old Robert Thibodeau of Plattsburgh was armed and en route to Champlain Valley Physicians Hospital at about 9 a.m. Tuesday morning. The caller was a concerned family member who said Thibodeau was recently fired from the hospital and had allegedly made comments about going there to harm people. Police pulled over a car matching a description of Thibodeau's just blocks away from the hospital. They detained him and searched his vehicle. Police say they found a loaded 12-gauge semi-automatic shotgun, plus two 10-round magazines and extra ammunition. According to hospital president Michelle LeBeau, CVPH didn't go on lockdown because the arrest was made shortly after the threat was made known to police. Thibodeau was charged with second-degree criminal possession of a loaded firearm. Police say they completed search warrants of his vehicle and home to seize any additional guns. Thibodeau was arraigned in city court and sent to Clinton County Jail on $250,000 cash bail or a $500,000 bond. His next court appearance is Thursday. Kara Chapman, North Country Public Radio. Democrats have clinched a key seat in the U.S. House of Representatives with Tom Suozzi's special election win on Long Island. That means the narrow Republican majority in the House will shrink even further after Suozzi takes office. WSHU's Desiree DiOrio reports. In the swing district that gained notoriety for sending Republican George Santos to Congress, voters battled a snowstorm Tuesday to elect Democrat Tom Suozzi. 
Swazi says his victory shows that voters are tired of division in Washington and want to send a proven problem solver to Congress. The people of Long Island and Queens are sick and tired of the political bickering. They've had it. They want us to come together and solve problems. So now we have to carry the message of this campaign to the United States Congress and across our entire country. Swazi represented New York's 3rd Congressional District before, from 2017 through 2022. His opponent was Republican Mozzie Pillup, a two-term Nassau County legislator. The race gained national attention when George Santos was expelled from the seat last year. On Long Island, I'm Desiree DiOrio for the New York Public News Network. The village of Boonville is getting millions in state funding to improve its downtown. The $4.5 million grant is from New York Forward. Boonville village officials say they want to build on previous community improvements and make the village more walker-friendly. They also want to say they want to grow opportunities for small businesses and public spaces. Two other North Country communities, Canton and Alexandria Bay, have also received the same state funding to improve their downtowns. New York State has reached an agreement with the Nature Conservancy to permanently protect more than 14,000 acres in the Adirondacks through two conservation easements and a research initiative. The state says the $9.3 million deal will provide new public recreational access in the Racket River Corridor and establish a first-of-its-kind freshwater research preserve. State Department of Environmental Conservation Commissioner Basil Sago says it's the largest addition to protected lands in the Adirondacks in more than a decade. The agreement will now provide full public access to 10 miles of of shoreline, 10 miles of shoreline at 6,000 acres of land uh, along the river, as well as the lower Moose Creek. Uh, Paddlers know this area well, of course, the the Northern Forest Canoe Trail. Uh, It will now have uh, camping sites, new camping sites along the river. Former logging roads will uh, provide easy hikes as well as other non-motorized activities. Uh, Fishing along the shoreline, hunting in new remote locations, uh, and some hunt camps that are there now will remain. The Nature Conservancy purchased the parcel in 2008. The river easement is adjacent to the DEC's 275,000-acre High Peaks Wilderness Complex. SUNY Potsdam police have arrested a student for setting a fire in a residence hall on campus over the weekend. According to a statement from the university, Fonta Johnson of Buffalo was charged on Monday with two felony counts of arson. The fire started in his dorm room on Saturday night. 62 students were evacuated. No one was injured. Some students are back in their rooms. Others are in temporary housing. They likely can't return to the dorm for the rest of the semester, according to the Watertown Daily Times. The building also houses several offices, including the Counseling Center, Student Health Services, and the University Police. None were damaged in the fire. Johnson was arraigned in Norfolk Town Court and is in custody at the St. Lawrence County Jail in Canton. In a statement, university officials say Johnson will be suspended pending the outcome of the case. The State Office of Fire Prevention assisted with the investigation. Storing energy in batteries is key to making renewable energy more reliable as the state pursues its climate goals. But after some batteries caught on fire in Jefferson County last July, local officials across the North Country have questioned the safety of battery storage sites. Now, a state group that has been investigating the impact of fires at battery storage facilities in New York has released its initial safety recommendations. Catherine Wheeler reports. 
Governor Kathy Hochul created the Interagency Fire Safety Working Group last year after battery storage fires in Suffolk, Orange, and Jefferson counties. It's tasked with analyzing environmental and safety impacts for battery energy storage sites. The group has released its first 15 draft recommendations. Most would update and add to the state's fire code. Several recommendations focus on safety precautions in case of an emergency. After the fires, local and state officials raised concerns about how communities would be able to handle the proper emergency response for incidents. One recommendation proposes that 24-hour emergency contact information should be clearly displayed so first responders can coordinate with site officials in an emergency and that a qualified representative should be able to get to the scene within four hours to support first responders. The group is also recommending each battery energy storage site have an emergency response plan accessible and on site and shared with the local fire department. It's also proposing annual site-specific training for first responders. Officials say battery storage is critical to the state's climate goals because they can hold a reliable supply of energy. Governor Kathy Hochul says that's why the state needs thorough standards, so the development of more renewable energy can be done safely and responsibly. The public can make comments on the proposed recommendations through March 5th. Catherine Wheeler, North Country Public Radio. A few North Country lawmakers are among Republicans in the New York State Legislature who are pushing back on the state's climate directive to eliminate school bus emissions by 2035. To get there, schools will only be allowed to purchase electric school buses starting in 2027. Eight years later, all school buses would be, have to be zero emission. While the state has made millions of dollars available for districts to buy new electric buses, some Republican lawmakers say it's not enough. North Country Senator Dan Steck is among the lawmakers challenging the mandate. He says it'll be financially difficult for small rural school districts and that the electric buses can't go as far in colder temperatures that are common here in this time of year. How is the safety of children all over the state, not just in the North Country, but all over the state, when that school bus battery doesn't work in January, or when they can't get to Albany to play in the NISMA concert that we're all going to be enjoying next month when they come here, because the school bus range is only 100 miles on a good day, and they got to drive 200 miles to get here. Fellow North Country lawmaker Assemblyman Scott Gray says the state shouldn't expect schools to, quote, meet a goal they're not prepared to carry out. Gray, Steck, and Assemblyman Matt Simpson are all supporting a new bill that proposes to delay the mandate until 2045 or until all state agencies have converted their own fleets. The bill would repeal the zero emission by uh, zero emission by 2035 mandate and require the state to run a cost benefit analysis for each school district.
You're listening to Northern Lights here on North Country Public Radio. It's 11 minutes past 8. Good morning. I'm Todd Moe. And I'm Monica Sandresky. Just ahead, technology has changed, but people still love books and libraries. We'll talk with the director of the Canton Free Library coming up in just a few minutes here on Northern Light. Evan Veenstra out of Gananoque, Ontario. Northern Light is supported by Mountain Orthotic and Prosthetic Services, a full-service practice committed to providing care and patients, care for patients of all ages, with offices in Lake Placid, Plattsburgh, and Malone. Details and referrals at mountainonp.com. And by Blue Seed Studios, Saranac Lake, promoting community involvement in the arts. On the web at blucseedstudios.org. The Adirondack Lodge at Heart Lake is fertile ground for love stories. With over 50 seasonal employees working there each summer, there's a lot of Heart Lake romance and a lot of Heart Lake heartbreak. Yesterday, we heard the historic and tragic love story of Henry Van Hovenberg and Josephine Schofield. Today, Valentine's Day, in our final love story, we've got a modern Heart Lake tale. Amy Fyreisel has our story. Dana Libby and Jeremy Utz both grew up far from the Adirondack Mountains. She in Virginia, he in Ohio. They both came to the area on somewhat of a whim after seeing seasonal jobs posted by the Adirondack Mountain Club. Dana was on a mission to work all over the country. I was doing seasonal work and once I got here, I kind of got smitten and it derailed the whole plan to go to other places because I liked it here so much. Jeremy came looking for a change of scenery and a more relaxed pace of life. I randomly just applied for a job at the Adirondack Mountain Club and was hired, and I had to look up what the Adirondacks was. I had never heard of it. I didn't know it existed. In 2016, they both found themselves working at the Adirondack Lodge on Heart Lake. Dana had a few seasons on lodge crew behind her. Jeremy was the lodge chef. Romance didn't blossom immediately, but a connection did. And just started as really fast friends, had a lot in common, taste in music and sense of humor and wanting to get out and play in the mountains. So we were friends for a couple of years first. And with the high peaks as a backdrop, that friendship grew deeper. The first hike we ever went on together was close. Yeah, a winter summit of Mount Van Hovenberg snowshoe hike in February, which was really lovely. I remember a pivotal moment. The first time we ever really spoke outside of work was literally right outside of the building in the rain, standing under the little eave, and uh, we talked about photography. They kept in touch during the off-seasons, and two years later, Dana moved to the Adirondacks full-time. She rented a tiny cabin in Lake Placid. And I was alone there for maybe about a week and a half before Jeremy was hanging out there a lot of the time. Jeremy was working as the property manager of the Johnsbrook Lodge, and he'd come stay with her on his days off. And then it just seemed all of a sudden like he was living there too. I had this idea that I was like, I'm going to live in this little cabin in the woods all by myself and start my new life. But you were a part of the picture pretty immediately. That tiny cabin was good training because the pair have shared a lot of close quarters since. A small apartment in Saranac Lake, a travel camper van, and a shed-like cabin on Heart Lake. 
Jeremy says the mountains are their favorite playground and a place where the relationship has grown. So I think a strong part of our bond comes from sharing really intense, beautiful, scary um, moments together in the mountains. To have a, a partner in the mountains that you trust with your life is similar to having a partner at home that you trust with your life. They got engaged in 2020, in the early months of the coronavirus pandemic. Dana proposed after a short hike to Copper's Pond in the Wilmington Notch for Jeremy's birthday. We were out there for a little while and I was stalling. And Jeremy was like, oh, we should probably go. And I was like, well, wait. And I pulled out a ring and I just kind of was holding it and not saying anything. And you're like, well, that's pretty. What's that for? And I was like, oh, do you, do you want to marry me? <laughs> and he said, yeah. <laughs> I was very surprised. I really liked the ring, but I was really surprised. I was not expecting it. He was so surprised because he had been in the process of buying a ring to propose to Dana. It was easy for me because I already had the ring picked out afterwards to just go ahead and order it. <laughs> <laughs> Four years later, the pair is still engaged. We are not legally married, but we are married, are married in our mind. And yeah. every time that we set to have a wedding, we get distracted by something else cool that we want to do or some other sort of trip that requires planning and money. Like buying a camper van and traveling around the country. And when they got back, they moved into the shed on Heart Lake and they had an aha moment. Having all of our belongings in this little space... I remember that being the moment when we realized that we had gone on all these adventures across the country and seen all these amazing things and realized that, like, we wanted to be here. Being like, wow, Utah's amazing, New Mexico's amazing, but also just really wanting to come home and not feeling like we could find this anywhere else. Like, the Adirondacks are just super special, and even all the cool places, this is still the coolest so again, instead of planning a wedding, they put a down payment down on a house in Saranac Lake, which they moved into a few months ago. They're both working for the Adirondack Mountain Club again, helping new visitors to find their love for these mountains. And they say the wedding will come. Spring. Spring. I think spring. Maybe in the backyard. Spring in the backyard. <laughs> Amy Fireisel, North Country Public Radio. This love story was suggested by Tom Duffy through NCPR's Texting Club when we asked for love story ideas last month. If you'd like to join the Texting Club, you'll hear from us about once a month. Text the word NEW to 315-978-6277. Thank you.
You're listening to Northern Light here on North Country Public Radio. I'm Todd Moe. And I'm Monica Sandreski. Coming up in just a minute, a conversation with Canton Free Libraries Director's Emily Hastings about the joy of serving her community. Then stick around after the show for Bird Note coming up at 842. But first, Todd has a look at the weather for us. Partly cloudy skies today or partly sunny, depending how you look in things, uh, with highs in the upper 20s, low 30s, and light winds out of the west-northwest. Lows tonight dipping into the single digits and teens overnight. And then tomorrow, about a 50-60% chance of scattered snow showers. Thursday evening into Friday will bring our next chance for some, some light, fluffy snow. The weather service says the Friday morning commute could see some slick travel and disruptions. Major impacts not expected. Snow amounts of up to six inches are expected, especially in St. Lawrence and Franklin counties and some of the higher summits of the Adirondacks and Green Mountains Friday, or rather Thursday night through Friday morning. Right now we've got clouds, 13 degrees here in Canton. As part of our ongoing series of stories and conversations about North Country libraries, we stopped by the Canton Free Library for a chat with Emily Hastings. She's just completed 10 years as director and is most proud of her library staff. Hastings says she's had a lifelong love for books, reading, and visiting the libraries. She was homeschooled in Pierpont in St. Lawrence County, and the Colton Public Library uh, was a haven in her early education. She attended college in New York City, and on Long Island, and her library career has come full circle from the Hamptons back up to the North Country. Hastings says her decision to become a library director was not so much for the love of books, but for people who love books. She says technology has changed the way we access information, but curiosity and learning still attract people to visit local libraries. The way people use information is is different. The way people access information is different. I know that um, when I was first starting fresh out of grad school, the big discussion was sort of like the internet is going to make ob- libraries obsolete. Like we won't we won't need it anymore. We'll get our information somewhere else. And you know we in a way do get our information other places. Um, but that still didn't mean that the library itself was outdated. Right. That, that, um, and there are things where, um, you know, libraries will, will say we're about more than just books. Uh, and I'll say we are. And we're also about books. <laughs> like books have also not gone away. There's still a lot of books downstairs yeah, and, like, and, yeah. and a lot of readers <laughs> and a lot of people who love books. Um, and it's it's still, people are still engaging with stories in, in the way that they always have. It's a it's just a human thing to engage with stories. And you mentioned the human thing. I, I've talked to some other library directors. They are really sort of proud of the fact that libraries still kind of put that human face on it too that that uh, it's like people come to a library i i have a question about taxes or i how can i find this or where do i go so libraries become such a a hub for a community absolutely yeah i mean there's something to be said for just having a friendly face to kind of figure something out with you we aren't tax experts we aren't (laughs) health experts but we are another person to bounce things off of Um, and i think that's valuable throughout our lives you know especially as online you know can be very dominant and we can be uh, not face to face with each other. Um, maybe we value it more when we are face to face. I don't know. And I hope. I hope so. Um, and I, I think that we we really try to be a friendly face and a a place where you feel 
safe going to ask something. A safe space, too. Now yeah. that you mentioned safe, I hear that I from other so. librarians that people come to a library. Um, I mean, especially sometimes young people, you know, mm-hmm. that it's a safe space for them. Yeah. yeah, I mean, we try to keep the safe, the, the space as physically spa- safe as possible. You know, yeah. of course, that's, um, you know, one can't always, you know, guarantee something like that. Yeah. Um, but, you know, you're also safe from having to buy anything. You know, it's a place where you can go and just be. You can spend the day. You can pull the book do, off the shelf yeah. and just sit and read. Yeah, yeah. and you know nobody's really going to bother you. Yeah. Um, you can interact with people if you want to, but you can also just feel that people are around you. Um, you can feel you're part of your community without having to engage in it. Uh, and I, I think that's a lovely thing. The library is just there and open and free and free. Yeah, yeah free yeah. to all. Hopefully, welcoming to all. I yeah. certainly want to be welcoming to everyone. Talk us through sort of the logistics here in terms of staff and who you have working. And if somebody walked in here, they would see a couple of friendly faces at the front desk, that kind of thing. Yeah. They, they would. They yeah. would see either Sam or Rachel, most likely, at our yeah. front desk. Um, they're there most of the time. Both of them have a multitude of skills, wear many hats, but you know they are, they're there every day to answer questions and chat about what books they love and, and all kinds of great things. Yeah. <laughs> we have 15 people here on staff, um, including a mix of full and part-time. And um, we also have two branches in mm-hmm. Rexler Falls and Morley. Um, and you would see some familiar faces there because uh, we have some folks that, that work in both buildings. Um, we have a wonderful children's department run by Valerie White, mm-hmm. who does just amazing children's programs she is an icon in the community and um, certainly if you if you go downstairs to our children's department that's what you'll see you'll be met by Val and if you're a kid she'll say hello friend welcome to the library (laughs) and hopefully you'll come to story time we have a, a, a real mixture of folks helping out there does this place fill up after school and I mean I know folks who've talked about it a chess club and other things happening here from time have to time. A chess yeah. Club. yeah, yes, we have. Uh, it's, it's open chess play uh-huh. on Tuesdays. Um, that was organized by a volunteer, and uh, yeah, folks are, are welcome to just settle in at the the tables from four to six on Tuesdays and yeah. just play chess. If there's somebody there that can play chess with you, we do have sort of. Uh, ebbs and flows of busy times. Um, we made a conscious decision when we expanded our hours post-COVID. Um, we wanted to be open until 6 every day. Uh-huh. So our hours are 9 to 6 every weekday and then 10 to 3 on Saturdays because we wanted to be able to catch folks coming home from work. Mm-hmm. Yep. Lots of lots of people stopping in on their lunch break or after work. And, uh, you know, it's, there's a lot of people that are just in for a minute to just grab a hold because they're, they're here for the books. Right, they know what yeah. they want. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Biggest joy. What do you? What do you sort of? Maybe something you're really just kind of really proud of. What I'm most proud of about this library is the staff. Yeah. Um, I think they're wonderful. Many of them very long-standing. We've had some folks here for a very long time. Um, they just keep getting better at what they do. Um, and I think the previous director sort of told me this coming in is like, my role is just to kind of get out of their way <sighs> and just. You know, when they come to me with something, facilitate what they want to do because they they know this library and community well. They love it, too, and they're constantly coming up with ideas for how to better serve the community. And I mean, that's 
what boss could ask for anything more than that? You know, I mean, I, they, they amaze me all the time. Emily Hastings, director of the Canton Free Library, talking about her staff. And you can check out more librarian and library stories on our website at ncpr.org. You're listening to Northern Light right here on North Country Public Radio. It's 827. Good morning. I'm Monica Sandreski here with Todd Moe. Just want to remind you about a few events going on throughout the region, including coming up in a couple of weeks in Ticonderoga. It's their end of winter carnival. Attendees can expect a zoo presentation, ice skating, free s'mores around the campfire, fireworks, juggling, and a magic act. For adults, there will also be live music at the Ledge Hill Brewing Company. The carnival is is Friday, March 2nd, and Saturday, March 3rd at venues around town. Also, uh, Pickens Hall presents For All We Know, a live jazz quartet uh, at Pickens Hall uh, tomorrow night. Tomorrow night, 15th, 7 to 9 p.m., a live jazz quartet. Uh, uh, they'll be playing music, uh, an, a, kind of an eclectic mix of music, American songbook, standards, blues, Latin, bebop, contemporary jazz, with an emphasis on improvisation. That's For All We Know, the jazz quartet uh, at Historic Pickens Hall in Hubleton, and that's tomorrow night from 7 to 9. That's it for the show for the day. Morning Edition continues in just a minute. Then join us after that for the Marketplace Morning Report coming up between 8.51 and 9 o'clock where you can get caught up on all the morning's business news. Northern Light is produced by this really cool team of people like my co-host, Monica Sandreski. My co-host, Todd Moe, along with Kara Chapman, Amy Fireisel, Lucy Grindon, Emily Russell, Catherine Wheeler, Anna Williams-Bergen, and our news director, David Summerstein, who edits every story that you hear on the show. And of course, from you. Yes, you for your financial support, but also because of your ideas. Reach out. We always want to hear from you about what stories you think the station should be covering, what's going on in your world. Let us know. Send an email to news at ncpr.org. You can also keep up with the station throughout this day on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, or email us, like I said, at news at ncpr.org. I'm Monica Sandreski. And I'm Todd Moe. Happy Valentine's Day. Be well.